0: Welcome back. I'm Ben Shaw. You're listening to Out the Gate Sailing, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. And this week to open the show, a special show, I have a guest before the guest to help us get into it. Uh, If you listen to the show regularly from the beginning, you will know Heather Richard from the very first episode of this podcast. Welcome back Heather.
1: Thanks Ben. Great to be here.
0: I wanted you to come on the show because this coming week is a special occasion the annual Sausalito Herring Festival and I wanted you to tell us a little bit about it. Our guest this week is going to be at this year's virtual festival and so I wanted to get you to kick it off by telling us a little bit about This, what is this? This is the eighth year of the Herring Festival now?
1: Yeah, that's about right.
0: Wow. So how did it start and what is it?
1: So we decided way back when we wanted to form the Sausalito Community Boating Center at the old Cascadley Marina that we needed an annual fundraiser that was going to set us apart and be a little different from everything else out there. And we also decided that this was a really cool time of year in Sausalito to uh, celebrate the things that speak to our mission at the Sausalito Community Boating Center. So um, we provide affordable access to boats and the water and education. We are trying to celebrate our maritime heritage in Sausalito in any way that we can. Um, and that heritage includes the fisheries and the local um herring fishing spawn, which is an awesome event. And that leads into the environmental aspect of our mission as well of preserving the ecosystem. So we decided that when the herring enter San Francisco Bay from the ocean and they spawn and create this big natural party on the water, it was the perfect time for us to throw a party. So that's where the herring festival came from.
0: That's awesome. And uh, more about the herring festival in just a second, but the community boating center was your brainchild and community boating centers are important to you. Why?
1: Well, I grew up in one and I learned to sail in one and um, it was such a life-changing experience for me that I just feel like we should have one here in my adopted hometown of Sausalito. So it's been a dream since the opportunity came up for a very special location. Um, when that was transitioning from a for-profit business into the city parks and recreation department hands, it was the perfect time to form this nonprofit partnership with the city and and create something like what I grew up in.
0: And I've been involved a little bit volunteering, and it's been amazing to watch this project this community boating center come to fruition and come to life and it's really at a, a key stage right now and that's why this festival is, is so important.
1: Yeah so it's really been a labor of love from a lot of volunteers like you, Ben, and, and a lot of others as well um, in the community. We've been working at this for a while now and there's been a lot of permitting and planning that had to get done initially. That's all finished. Um, Now we're just simply raising money and building boats and starting to get ready to kick the doors open later this year. And so this festival will specifically fund the final pieces of the construction. And then also we are starting to build boats with our partner programs. We're going to build a little fleet of pelicans and we have some donated boats that have come to us in various states of repair and disrepair that we need to get up to safety standards to take kids out on the water and to be available for rentals and for classes. So the money that we raise next week is really going to put us into our first year of operation.
0: And if people want to support by attending the Herring Festival, and I should say not just attend because you're supporting a great cause, but because it's going to be a fantastic event with a lot of Cool entertainment. Uh, how do they do that?
1: Yes, yeah, so you go to scbc.betterworld.org. scbc is the Sausalito Community Boating Center. scbc.betterworld.org, and you can buy raffle tickets. You can bid on a couple of items that we have, like a charter on the Matthew Turner Tall Ship, which is a huge item, and it, it would be really good to get the word out that that's available to people. And then also, Um, We have meals that are available to pre-order if you want a herring meal delivered to you on the night of the festival so that you can eat your dinner and watch the chefs do cooking demonstrations of how to prepare and use local herring um, while you're tasting their meals, which is going to be fun. And then we have sea shanties and stories and all kinds of cool different little snippets for you to watch on Wednesday night.
0: Coming up this Wednesday. So that's the 27th.
1: It's at six o'clock. It'll be online. It'll be, it'll be live on Facebook and on YouTube. And also if you sign up through our sites through scbc.betterworld.org, you'll get a link sent to you for entering the zoom as well.
0: All right. So sign up for that. And, The reason we're having you help me introduce our upcoming guest is because Ernie Kopp, who is an author and a herring fisherman, will be reading some of his work at the upcoming festival. Tell me a little bit about Ernie, how you met Ernie and his involvement with the Herring Festival.
1: Yeah, I um, came at the Community Boating Center from the sailing field, but I didn't We were really interested in what was happening with the herring fishery, didn't know much about it. And Ernie was just a wealth of information. When we started the festival, he was still commercially fishing. And uh, he would let me know when and where the spawns were happening and explain what kind of limits they were allowed to get and who the buyers were and where the fish was going once it was landed. And he was just really involved in all of that in the very beginning before he retired. And then he sat on a panel discussion on, um, to discuss a couple of films that we have shown in the past. And he's also written some really cool short stories about being a herring fisherman in San Francisco Bay and what that was like in the, in the heyday of it. So he's just been part of the team now for a while. And it's great to have him in this virtual setting as well, because he's got a lot of
0: great stories to tell so many good stories to tell. <laughs> I really enjoyed reading his book and meeting him at past Herring festivals. So without further ado, we'll jump right in and, and get to Ernie. But thanks, Heather. Thanks for helping me kick it off.
1: Yeah, thanks, Ben. We'll see you on Wednesday.
0: See you Wednesday.
2: Uh, my name is Ernie Kep I was born and raised in uh, Half Moon Bay, California. I lived there Oh, for 47 years, and then I married uh, my current wife, Jan Mostu, who lives over here in the hills of Oakland, and I uh, opted to move here under the redwood trees in the sunshine, leaving that fog behind. (laughs)
0: Leaving the fog and the fog horns and the...
2: I left a lot behind.
0: (laughs) You spent much of your time on the water. Yeah,
2: that's uh, that's a big part of what I left behind, uh, Ben. However, I uh, kept up my career fishing in San Francisco Bay for herring. Uh, I did that for about 45 years. I fished salmon and crab mostly out of Half Moon Bay for 30 years. I I've had uh, several boats in my in my life and. Two of them were fishing boats, and one of them was for salmon and crab, and the other for herring. I've sold all the boats now, I'm retired.
0: Well, we first met a couple years back at the uh, Herring Festival in Sausalito, uh, which is put on by the Sausalito Community Boating Center, and you were on a panel talking about your experience, and you're going to be doing so again at the upcoming virtual herring festival which is one of the reasons yeah. I wanted to talk to you you're going to be talking about fishing but you're also going to be talking about your writing so you've you've switched gears now
2: yeah that's a new uh, a new hobby for me is writing i well actually i've been writing for quite some time as a journalist for uh, Pacific Fishing Magazine, I've written uh, numerous other articles. But for the Herring Festival, they recorded me reading a uh, short story called Quick and Dirty.
0: And I don't want you to uh, ruin it for anybody who might be listening and then might be tuning in for the Herring Festival, but can you give us a quick synopsis about what that story is about? As in other
2: years, we were waiting and waiting and waiting or the herring to come into the shallows where we could catch them. We could see them in the deep water, they just weren't coming in. Well, on this one particular night, they did come in. So I knew the game was on. So early in the run, as a matter of fact, the first uh, net that my boat gal and I ran, it had a ton in it. Unfortunately, I injured my ankle. It was early in the week. And I had a long way to go. And the ankle was broken. Mm. I'll leave it right there because there's about another three days left in that week. And it, <laughs> the hits just kept on going.
0: Yeah, we'll leave people in suspense so they can can sign up and and, and hear the whole thing at the Harrion Festival. But I right. want to talk about some other writing you did you have done. Yeah. Opening day, the book opening day. Is this your first book? It is my first book. I just finished reading it and I have to say, not only was it eye-opening in terms of about fishing around San Francisco, I learned a hell of a lot about crab fishing, salmon fishing, heron fishing. But you are a a beautiful writer. I was very much. I was saying before we, we began the interview, and I'll repeat it for those listening that there were multiple times over the last week that I stopped my wife and said, "Hey, you have to hear this." and I would read her passages a lot aloud because they were beautiful, evocative sentences about being on the ocean or the sounds or the sights, but also concise and not not overly flowery. So I really I really liked it. And boy, do you have some stories to tell? <laughs> this
2: was a, an like autobiographical novel, correct? Like yes, it is. And the protagonist is Alex. And, and uh, I guess I am Alex. I am Alex. Uh, I embellished a few things uh, just for story content and keep the arc of the story going. But a lot of the anecdotes Uh, are modeled on my experiences.
0: I want to ask you about some of the more notable ones and you don't have to tell us whether they're embellished or not.
2: (laughs) No, great, great. I would like to. First, I would like to go back for a moment and and thank you for the uh, compliment that my writing is uh, concise and tight and not overly, not flowery at all. I worked at that because I had an editor who required me to write articles that were <laughs> a certain number of words. And like, I would write an article, it'd be 2,800 words. He says, well, that's fine, but you know, you gotta, you gotta pare it down to 800. So I worked at that.
0: And everybody needs a good editor. Yeah. I think as, as a journalist myself, I appreciate that, that uh, conciseness not being in love with your own words, but being able to paint a picture vividly.
2: Well, that's right. That's exactly right. I, I, I don't like books where the author just uh, tries to impress himself. I like the story.
0: Yeah. Well, I highly recommend it for anybody who's interested in it. As I was reading it, I was thinking the more things change, the more they stay the same because I'm reading in the news about the crab season not opening because the price hasn't been yeah. agreed on. And and here in your book, you're talking about exactly the same thing happening when you were a kid crabbing with your father.
2: It's so true. I, I was struck also by the similarity. I have a lot of experience with uh, fishermen on strike. We would strike every year, usually for a dime or a quarter and nickel. One time I went on a strike in Crescent City for a nickel for 56 days, and uh, that's not really a successful strike.
0: <laughs> Particularly you you when there's that. a short season. Well,
2: that's just the thing. You know, we saw we saw two months of the a season go by while we sat around in a motel and on the boat and in the parking lot picking rocks while the clock was ticking on the season. We didn't finally go though. But back to your point about this year and the similarities of the strike. This year, uh, it was not, once again, a successful strike for these guys. That's exactly how it's been for, I think, 45 or 50 years. I'm not kidding. Wow. It's been that long that these guys have been on strike in this way. Anyway, there is that similarity in the book, all
0: right. And the protagonist, Alex, who who is you, grew up um, fishing on his father's boat. Is that how you how you grew up as well?
2: Yeah, the uh, cover of the book uh, shows me when I'm about ten years old talking to my dad on the boat. I had a uh, you know a period of you know fishing on my father's boat in the summers. Then. I didn't fish for about three or four years when I came of age and reached puberty. I was sort of a rebellious teen, but I uh, drifted back into fishing when uh, when it seemed like the thing for me to do, the thing that I knew how to do. And also, being from a small town, there was it was tremendously easy for me to step into the fishing life. All of the guys in the coffee shop. And everybody in town called me Little Ernie because my father was bigger. Even though I was like six foot four or some goddamn thing. So it was easy to get into that fishing life. And I deckhanded hands for my brothers and uh, I finally bought my own boat.
0: In the book, there's this wonderful description of you looking at the boat that you're gonna buy and overlooking all the That's- problems. Yeah. Just dreaming. Right.
2: Yeah, ah, I went blind. I was—I completely blind. I wanted that first boat so bad. <laughs> it was a dog, stinky, noisy, cramped. It was bad, but I loved it. In fact, I took that boat all the way up to Coos Bay back in the summer. Had a little tiny boat.
0: What size was it? It's
2: was a twenty-eight foot Monterey, and. Uh, the weather got calm and uh, we'd been having a good season and we said, well, what the hell? Let's just keep the ball rolling and roll the dice with the wind. Let's go up to Oregon and fish for silvers. Being good weather, good traveling weather, we took off. And thank God the weather stayed good for 24 hours. Otherwise we'd have got pasted every time We tried to go around a point. It's something, it's something in a 28 foot boat because those Monterey's, you know, you're practically standing on the keel. So your eyes are about three or four feet above the water. And when that water comes over the side, a lot of times it's green, which means a wave.
0: Now in the book, your father goes down with his boat.
2: Yeah, I uh, made that up. My father died young, but he died of, uh, he died in surgery, back surgery. Okay. I had to create that just to keep the storyline going.
0: No, it was a good part of the story.
2: Well, actually that, uh, that was lifted right from uh, an actual uh, fisherman. A fisherman named Fred Suflue had a brother named Maisie. They fished out a fisherman's wharf and Maisie went down with his boat and he wouldn't leave the boat because he was afraid of the sharks. He just went in the cabin and shoved the door. Wow, he called Fred said he was sinking. Fred started to run for him, but then I'll tell you, it's really a big ocean when you're out there, Albacore fishing. You can start the day right next to your brother, and by the end of the day. You know, you're miles and miles away, hours and hours away. These boats travel at eight knots, so Fred just didn't get to Maisie in time. Maisie went down with a boat. Mm. And the sharks are bad. Believe me, the sharks are very bad. I'm sure it was uh, blue sharks. There could be a couple hundred sharks in the water. Not all big, of course, but there's a couple hundred sharks in the
0: water. You don't want to be with them. one of the other things that I wanted to ask you about you mentioned growing up in a small town Mm -hmm. and you talk about how Half Moon Bay has changed over the time you write about people from LA coming up and talk about the the changes that you've seen
2: well Half Moon Bay was just sort of a little backwater little (laughs) artichokes place where they grew out of chokes for decades. And then around 1870, this outfit from LA, they came up here and they looked at this place called Athlon Bay and said, look at this little jewel. It's just ripe for development. So they started buying up land, And before you know it, they remade the little town, which, you know, hey. I'll give them that. It was kind of falling down and in, in ruins. It had seen uh, the sardine, they had a couple of sardine canneries there, they had piers there, and all in ruins now. You know, time, it had gone through different eras. It went through the bootleg era, went through the sardine era, and uh, D Dean came along and they said, We're going to turn this place into a Cape Cod village. <laughs> and they built a restaurant. And it looked like a little salt box from the East Coast. And they built a housing development called Clipper Ridge. and It was the beginning. first housing tract on the coast side. And it stood out like a sore thumb. Prior to the, the housing tracks, I went to nice school in San Francisco, Galileo, and I had a inside. And uh, some days, I just gave up. Because no cars came by on Highway One. I just say, oh well, this ain't gonna work out. After an hour, no cars came by, so I just turn around and went home. Today, my friends who live there tell me that you can't drive on the weekend. You have to stay home. And when I go there during the weekday, it looks crowded to me. I was a dentist in Happen Bay, still my dentist. He said that uh, he had an appointment canceled at 8.45 because a resident in Moss Beach couldn't get four miles to Athen Bay in one hour. Oh, gosh, yeah. I'm not kidding. It's backed up. The roads are basically the same as when I was there, when I first lived there. The roads haven't changed, but the demographic has The demographic uh, certainly has
0: changed. You have a wonderful story in your book about a new restaurateur who moves in and opens a new place. And there's a bit of animosity between the fishermen who come in and start um, enjoying the hospitality of the restaurant where the owner wasn't too pleased with this. And so uh, I'll let you tell the story. I don't know whether it's true or not, but I sure want it to be.
2: Well, that happened. That happened. I spoke of uh, Dean and Dean coming and wanting to build a little Cape Cod fishing village. Well, their anchor, so to speak, was this restaurant called the Shorebird. You know, we all kind of gave it the side eye saying, oh, look at this place, you know. But it had a bar. Well, you know, that's a benefit. You know, it's a new hangout. We could overlook the fact that you know we're from Southern California trying to take over a town. We just appropriated their bars, our clubhouse. (laughs) So one afternoon we went over there and, being the way we were, we started drinking, kept on drinking, and the manager of the bar, Bill May, who pretty much had a stick up his ass, he didn't like the proceedings that was going on in his bar. We kind of featured it as some kind of high-class dinner house. I don't know. We were having a good time. Yuck it up And it was rowdy. It was real rowdy. So uh, Maine kept threatening to uh, take us out. So we would uh, occasionally get these octopus as a bycatch in the trap because octopus go into traps and eat the crabs. So we'd save this octopus. And so uh, kind of the leader of our gang, Mike, he uh, got Sam and he would go down the boat and get this octopus he and Sam, Samantha he and Sam came back and Sam went to the women's restroom with this octopus and put it in the toilet and shut the lid tight on the octopus and right behind her came this woman and she just lifted the seat without looking and sat down and screamed <laughs> and ran out with her pants down around her ankles, screaming. Huh. So, quickly followed by the octopus. The octopus was slithering on the floor, and they are fast. They are really fast and slippery, and they can shrink to you know, fit through a knothole hole So, this octopus is now loose in Bill Bing's dining room, and people are freaking out, and people are with brooms and trying to get, get it. Under control, and finally, this bus boy, this Mexican kid, comes out with a, a bus tray and they stopped the octopus and threw it outside. But there was no one left to see that by that in the restaurant because they had all run for the exit before the octopus.
0: Oh, I yeah. love it! That was a night to remember.
2: That was a night to remember. So, you see, Bill Maine. He had a case. and When we showed up there a couple weeks later doing our drinking thing and taking over his bar, he'd put his foot down. He'd had enough. He knew where this movie was going to end. Oh, man. You know, we like to have a good time and we like to live on the wild side a little bit kind of push it to the edge and just see what would happen. And, of course, we were emboldened by each other.
0: Your memories of these things are strikingly vivid in the book. How did you, I know it's your life, but how did you reconstruct it and write it all down?
2: Well, you said it. it there are no notes involved. It's just, you know, recalling episodes that uh, meant a lot to me that stuck in my mind, and, you know. It's just how I grew up and how I remember things. A lot of it comes from my
0: life experience. Right what you know is what they say, right?
2: That is. That is what they say. And that's what I do. And it's just a hobby. I mean, you know.
0: Are you still in touch? Um, I'm sure you are with those in the the fishing community or... Your lifelong friends, very much so, very much so.
2: However, I don't go down to Half Moon Bay much, on as it is.
0: So, what I wanted to ask you, Ernie, is what's your take on the state of fishing in Half Moon Bay today?
2: Well, I was down there about two, three weeks ago, first time a long time, and the boats all had crab pots loaded on and the parking lot was full of crab pots. I would say that uh, nowadays, fishing is, is about making money. And it always has been that. Don't get me wrong. It's always been about making money, but I believe there's an overemphasis on that now, and uh, a lot has been lost. It might be just The times, but things are faster. There's more gear, you know, there's more competition. My time has passed me by. And there's a great quote that I would like to read from my book. Yeah, please do. This This comes from uh, a a man named Frank D'Amato. I tied up next to him in Fishman's Ward. We, uh, we were slipmates together. We, uh, his nickname, by the way, was Green Crab. Great guy from the old school. Old Italian guy. This is a quote from Green Crab. I interviewed him one day, and I have that interview. And I looked at this right out of the interview. Quote. It was the times. Things were slow, and people accepted it. They slept good at night. They had their doors open. Nobody broke into your house. The milkman came and delivered the milk. The bread was delivered. It was a different world. We might think, hey, we got a maid now. But you got to talk to those people. But those people are all buried in Colman now. They're gone. Those people had a way of life that was enjoyable. They had an association over there. They had something like when you cut a pie home on the table everybody was sure they got the same piece. Nobody got the bigger, nobody got the smaller. Everybody was doing their thing and they were happy. All they had to do was make $5, $15 a day, and that was more than enough for them. And they they brought up five, six, seven kids a piece. They were all just fine and said, well, everything was cool. Now, if you've got three or four children, you might as well go sign up at the bank and say, hey, you got to do something. I'm not going to make it. Today, if a guy starts out with a couple of hairs on his head, after he's 35, after what they got to go through now, they're wiped out. They're either bald or they're ready to drop. Give me my old way. I'm out of the business now. I'm happy. I take care of the boat. And she took care of me. We had the most
0: beautiful boat. Ah, oh, that is wonderful. I, I love hearing his voice through your writing, and I love how you've brought all the characters and your own story to life in your book. I've really enjoyed it and enjoyed talking to you, Ernie. Look forward to reading more of your stories. Well, you know, I look forward to writing. Tell you the truth, and.
2: It's been fun uh, giving you this interview because there's nothing like talking about yourself and what you're doing. It's one of our favorite subjects.
0: I hope to give people a platform to do that. That's why I like doing it. Well, you keep on doing it. Thanks a lot. All right, Ernie. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. You can find Ernie's book, Opening Day, for Kindle on Amazon.com. And if you can't make it to the Herring Festival this Wednesday, you will be able to view the festivities after the fact by going to the Sausalito Community Boating Center's website. at SausalitoCommunityBoating.org. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show, Thanks for listening, and as always, smooth sailing.